What a start for Brad Hughes. 180 metres to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot. What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh, my goodness. What a finish for Bradley Hughes. Aging under par, joining the lead. An amazing victory. For the second time, Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. Steve Elkington's golf swing has always been regarded as a thing of beauty. There is much more to Elk than just the swing. Listen in as we discuss his background and what helped mould that swing. And who in today's game has the tools to become top of the heap of today's players? One of golf's great storytellers, Elkington, fills up this episode with a wealth of knowledge that we can all learn from. Let's go. Steve Elkington episode. Welcome to Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. We've got one of the legends of the game, one of my good buddies from back in Australia, Steve Elkington. Thanks for joining us, Elk. Good morning, Hugo, mate. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's awesome. We, are, we go way back about 30 years now. First time we ever played together, I remember, was the 93 Australian Open. And I was the reigning Masters champ and you were the defender of the Australian Open. You'd won that year before at the Lakes. Uh, you remember that or not? I do remember that, mate, yeah. We played, a, we played a few times over here, but that was one of the few times we played in Australia, wasn't it? You, how old are you? You're, you? We didn't come across one another in a junior series, did we? No, you were a bit before me. You'd already uh, won your Doug Sanders and chuffed off to Houston before I really, I didn't know. I knew of you, the legend of you, but I didn't know you the person. Always tricky going to Melbourne to play you guys down there when they got all those good bunker games and long iron play. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, obviously courses that you grow up on form your results, really, any game. So tell us about where you grew up. I know uh, you weren't born in Wagga Wagga, which is an interesting name for a lot of people, but you grew up there. Tell us about the the venue and the course and how it all happened. Yeah, Wagga Wagga, um, most of those towns in Australia are named after Aboriginal names, and Wagga means place of, of crows, a lot of crows there, mate. And then Wagga Wagga means there's a ton of crows there, I guess. <laughs> no, that's wrong. That's gumbly gumbly. I'm going to do that again. Are you at this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's gumbly gumbly. Wagga Wagga is, the, uh, in Australia, most of, the, most of the names of the towns are done from Aboriginal names, and Wagga means the river forks on one side of the town and re-forks on the other. So that was what that meant. But I grew up on a, on a pretty nice little golf course on the lake in Wagga Wagga, uh, Wagga country. Uh, not too many bunkers like you guys had in Melbourne, but, you know, Australian courses in the country are narrow and there's a lot of trees and you had to learn to hit the ball straight. You had, you know, all the lies aren't great playing off Kaikuya once you got off the fairway. So, you know, I lacked for nothing growing up as far as uh, having a place to play. I actually, uh, I actually like the crow story. I, I'd, I'd like to hear that there was a lot of crows as well as trees out there. Well, that's gumbly gumbly. That's right. <laughs> the next town over is uh, lots of crows, mate. So I know you. Uh, what time, what uh, age were you when you started? I know you eventually, and I'd love to hear this story. Started trekking up to Sydney for golf lessons, but how did it all start in in that area for you with your golf game? Yeah, well, my dad was in the bank, so he moved around a bit. We, we were out in Narrabri, way out in the country when I first started playing. And then we got moved to Goulburn. And that's how Bruce Devlin was my hero. 
uh, growing up because his name was on all the trophies in Goulburn in that Illawarra area or that whole area around uh, Goulburn. And um, as you know, once you become a good player, a good junior player, you get selected on to represent your state and our state, New South Wales. We got coached by the legendary Alex Mercer, who was the pro at Royal Sydney. He was a great tour player in his own right you know, on the Australian tour, we played with Thompson and Nagel and all those guys. And we would take the train uh, from after school on Friday afternoons down to Sydney and we would get, you know, picked up by some people and we would go practice with Alex Mercer at Royal Sydney for Saturday and Sunday. Got to play like New South Wales Golf Club, the Lakes, uh, Royal Sydney, of course. And then we would go back on the train Sunday night. So, and then, of course, as that team was put together, then we would travel to play the Interstate Series against guys like you in the Victorian team and, and Queensland and all that. And that's how it was a great system to grow up in. Yeah, and Alex, uh, obviously, like you said, people... I've had this question asked to me. Uh, someone said to me, a lot of people in, you know, in Australia forget that you were actually a golfer. They just think you were an instructor now. And Alex was the same. He was actually a pretty good player. Yeah, Mercer, um, he was sort of always had trouble with his putting, but he still won, you know, 25 tournaments around Australia, Australasian area. Uh, not for huge money back then, but, you know, he's playing against Peter Thompson and Nagel and, you know, all these other guys that are great players as well. Thompson, of course, went across and won five British Opens. Crampton was there. I mean, there's a story about Alex Mercer. Was There was a young fellow that came up to see him that was left-handed and worked with Alex at Royal Sydney for, oh, about a month. And Alex decided that he, after watching him play left-handed, he thought he'd flip him around and play him right-handed. Well, that player was David Graham. He went on to win the 1980 U.S. Open at Marion, 80-81, with one of the great ball-striking performances of all time. But imagine a pro going to a pro now and you flip him the other other over where he thinks he played better and went on to be a a two-time major winner. Yeah, that's nuts, especially... Well, I guess in those days, left-handers, I I don't know this is practical or or fact, but a lot of them used to say the equipment wasn't as good and all those things like that, but obviously had better reasons for him to uh, to flip him over. Yeah, I think, you know, power or just technique or whatever. But, you know, there's a few guys that are very powerful both ways. I've seen some of these young guys. I've seen uh, Dustin Johnson. I've seen Brooks Kepka hit it left-handed, mate. I can't hit it across the room left-handed. But these guys (laughs) can just flip it over and... Have you got any skills left-handed? Uh, not really. I, I Actually, I'll, I'll sidetrack. I'll tell you one story. I, I played the Canadian Open, you know, up at Glen Abbey there. And I was in the Pro-Am and I was playing with this group. And the guy in the group says, we get on the 16th hole, which you know is a par five, back to the clubhouse. And this guy in my group said, all right, Pro, I'm going to get you to play this hole with my clubs. We always do it with a guy in our Pro-Am group. And they're left-handed. So... I think, all right, who cares? With the pro-am, it doesn't matter. So I get up and you know what it feels like. It feels like you've never played golf before. Like you just don't know what you're doing. Practice swing, terrible. But I hit this drive. He had a big berth. I hit it like 250 up the fairway. I tonked a three with just show the green. I chipped and ran a nine iron up for foot and tapped it in for birdie. And then I said, all right, I quit. That's it for me. I've played one hole. I'm under par. I'm going to keep it at that. Yeah. Now, mate, that would have been double digits for me i reckon <laughs> but obviously can't do it again i have tried it in a few lessons so uh you know we cross paths not uh through the 
playing it in itself, but you won the Doug Sanders International uh, 1980. Yep. And I won it in 84. So that's our four year separation. So we didn't, but by 81 or what have you, you'd moved on to Houston through a scholarship. And I'm sure Doug was a little bit instrumental in that because he was from that area. What did that, um, you know, obviously that opened up a lot of doors for you. It opened up some doors for me. It was a pretty big tournament and pity that it went by the wayside later on. But can you remember your recollection of that, who you played against, where it was, and how did they go in the long term? Yeah. So I won the Doug Sanders, as you said, in 80. There was the So it's the they take the, the winner of a big tournament in Australia or Australasia, plays a big the winner of the American section, and the winner of Europe section. And Steen Tinning, you remember that name? I do Steen remember that. Tinning, yeah, he was the European champion. And a kid named Daryl Henning was a uh, – he played on the Houston Baptist team with Colin Montgomery about the same time I was there. I came back in 82. So Doug Sanders' tournament was we would all fly to England. We played 36 holes at Walton Heath. We carried the scores over to my hometown and – uh, we went to New South Wales Golf Club. We played 36 there. We carried those scores over to the Woodlands in Texas right here. And I finished up winning that tournament. And that's where Coach Dave Williams saw me playing and uh, finished up coming back to school in 82. Uh, you know, did four years there with uh, Billy Ray Brown and I were, were roommates in college. You know, Jim Nance was there at the end of his broadcasting career. I mean, I had a great time at University of Houston. It was a great experience. That's where I met my wife. My son went to school there. I mean, everything happened to me in my golf, you know, came through that one tournament that you just talked about there in 1980 because that that got me over here where people could see me. That's unreal that you um, played in all the continents because I never got to do that. I just won it in Australia and the final was in Scotland. So how's that for a 17-year-old just to jet around the world? Like how quickly... Were they spaced out? Were they weekly or spread out? Or uh, we played two days, you know, in in uh, Sunningdale, and then we flew to Hawaii for a couple of days on the way back, on the way to Sydney to rest, and then we played there, and then we came back to Hawaii again, and then came. It was about a ten day deal. It was great. It was fantastic, and um, I got a bit of a lead. It was pretty even coming out of Sunningdale. We had some decent weather in England, but the wind blew like crazy at New South Wales. I had the huge advantage. Um, these guys were playing the big ball, 1.68 size. I had the little hot dot, mate, the little hot dot. Uh, you know the one. I do. The black one, 1.62. And I, I think I finished up coming out of there with about a six-shot lead because I think I shot like 72, 73, which was unreal around New South in a big wind. And uh, I was able to come back to America. Then I actually tried for the first time the Ballada Titleist ball. Mate, it was like hitting a water balloon. And around the greens, it sat up so good on the grass. It's like my chipping became, I thought I was Seve Ballesteros for about six months. But because with a small ball that sat down, as you know, you had to play a different sort of a pinch action to get it out of there. Once the big ball sat on top, it, it felt like it felt so easy to pitch. Saw more cushion under it. Um, well, we nearly actually crossed paths again because due to my victory in the Australian part of the Doug Sanders, I got scouted by Houston and Houston Baptist, who you mentioned, and my other one was Old Miss. Um, I could have been you, one of the first Aussies to ever go over there. I was, would have been close behind you, but I chose not to do it. Just I got scared of doing an SAT test. I didn't know what the hell that was. So 
I sort of got freaked out by that. But tell us about Coach Williams because he used to call me, you know, try and recruit me and probably did the same to you. But if the phone rang at 3 a.m., I knew someone was dead or it was him trying to call me and speak about getting over there. Yeah, Coach Williams was – he was amazing. You know, he uh, he had this knack of being able to recruit guys. In my case, it was obvious I was one of the good players at the time. But he brought in all these guys like uh, John Mahaffey who – you know, way back and Freddie Couples from up in Seattle and Blaine McAllister, all these guys, Bruce Litsky, he was able to sort of look at a player a little bit like Alex Mercer when he had a lot of talent coming in. He would be able to look at you and see into the future of what he thought, you know, this player was capable of. And he was a real manager. You know, he wasn't right going to be there and tell you what you were doing so much with your swing. You know, the kids now have so much more tools and I was actually in a conversation the other day and someone said, well, if you're in college now or you're on tour now and you had all these tools like TrackMan and all these things, would you look at it? And I go, I'd be a fool if I, if I didn't have, you know, if I was playing the tour now and I could have a machine to tell me I was one degree more inside out than I was yesterday and I knew how to fix that. I'd be crazy if I didn't. But on the same token, I don't know how you feel, but we had to feel – we. Even the guys today, when they do get that information, they still have to have someone there like you to, to make the body parts move, to change the picture. Well, we, we were able to change the picture pretty easy. Uh, you know, if I'm hooking it, I'm not hooking it anymore after, after I get on the range after a while. You know what I mean? All right. And that was more by ball flight, feel and divot, or how do you go about it? I mean, we had to, we had to be more feel orientated. Yeah, I mean you have to understand that, you know, a ball starting left with the club face, you know, you first check the ball position. I would, the first thing I would do is I would get the ball back so far back that I would get it to start right, you know, just from the bottom of the swing arc and just change the picture, you know, real quick, you know, and, and you, of course you, as you just said, you know, you had to have, you know, you had to have acute awareness of where you were, the better fundamentals you had, whether you had a really perfect grip, you know, good setup and all that sort of thing where you weren't sort of, too unorthodox helped. I mean, you you played a different technique than I did. You had a weaker left-hand grip with a wider swing arc. I was a little stronger. You and I have spent time on this, a little stronger with a, more of a, a setting motion on the backswing. But nothing really, you know, could go way wrong with those two actions, do you think? That's right. They corresponded to one another. You know, stronger means a bit more rotational and weaker is probably a bit more up and, and things like that. So... I gather from that what you said is if you are hooking it, you're trying to basically get it to go the other way first so it's something different and then you end up meeting in the middle. Yeah, and I, you know, when you think about coaching and there's all lots of ways and you do this every day, but I never was a – I'm not going to – I'm not going to uh, contradict myself, but I sort of am. I never like to um, – if I'm hooking it, I never like to start slicing it. I didn't want to go – I didn't want to do the opposite. I tried to make the perfect mo movements, but I had to get the contrast of, to move the picture first. I was at the Women's US Open here and I was watching all these ladies with their track mans and they were, they were getting their data and they were looking at it and you could tell they needed to get something fixed. And basically Sean Foley was at the side and he would walk up and he would see the data and then he would tell them how to do it. And my, my point is we knew how to do it. We, right. whether it was, shoulder action, arms in further, you know, open up less with the shoulder, all these different things that would get the ball to change, right? 
And that's certainly an advantage. Like that's what I try and do with my teaching in that I don't want to be their crutch all the time. I want them to understand it because I'm not going to be there every week watching every round. So if they have an issue, they need to know how to do it, not just have a machine tell them. Yeah, and, and we have tendencies, right? You probably had three or four things you did wrong. I can tell you what mine were. I'm tall. I learned, you know, watching Devlin, Nicholas, all these guys had a lot of lateral movement through the ball. So I would always get too lateral. So I always had two or three things, and my arms would get a little bit out out too early. So I had to hold them back all the time, you know, and, and, and open up a little bit more. So I had two or three ways to stop sliding, so to speak. Uh, and then obviously you did great in college. Um, you had some pretty cool roommates or in your area in college too that were non-golfers. Give us a quick insight into that, how, how you... Well, as I said, uh, Jim Nance was finishing up there. Billy Ray Brown and I were roommates. But Carl Lewis, the fastest human living, was two doors down. Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler, two of the greatest basketball players that ever lived, they lived in our dorm. So we had all this talent there. We didn't re realise it at the time, but we were all good friends and we go watch these guys play basketball. It was just, you know, and Carl Lewis was, like I said, the fastest guy alive. And it was just sort of, you know, we were locked in this little, of the eighties right there at the university of Houston, we were winning national championships. They were doing great. And we thought this is the way it's supposed to be, but um, mate, it hasn't happened since down there, but uh, you know, we had a, we had an unreal run when we were there. I never thought of Carl Lewis going to college. That freaked me out when I heard that. Yeah. All right. So let's get into your pro stuff. You um, obviously you hit the ground running, got your card, probably you nearly led the Q school or came second at Q school and just got your card pretty immediate. Yeah. No, I, I missed, I missed my tour school the first year after being, you know, having a great college career. I just, you know what I did when I got out of college, I was probably the best college player that year. And I started working out thinking that's what I had to do to, to be a tour player. And I lost all my feel and I went to tour school and missed. Finished up going to Europe for about six months, got my card for the next year, and then came back and went through this again and finished second, as you said, joined the tour in 1987. And, um, you know, I played the tour for like almost three decades straight till, till I had enough sort of thing. Everyone remembers their first win. Yours was at Greensboro. Uh, what yeah. year? 80, 1990. 90. Okay. So you had a few years out there first. Now, yeah. I nearly had this happen to me too, but I believe you won it and played early and there was almost basically no footage of you. One putt. <laughs> a putt that long. Think of that. On CBS Sports today, I had one putt. I hit a seven nine out of the right rough, ran up to this far from the hole, and I tapped that in to win the tournament or at the time finish six under that finished up winning by two strokes. So that was the only shot on TV, but mate, I didn't care. It was great. It was a, a big win came up. I, I got to the turn at two under shot four under on the back to get to six. When I was at the turn at two, eight under was leading it six shots back. And those guys came way back. That was at Forest Oaks. You've been there probably. Hard course back in the day, very windy, high rough. Almost always under 10 under won that tournament. And, um, yeah, I was. that was, a, like I said, I, I, I really didn't care. Well, at least they got something. Yeah. So the following year you win the players, and that's big because obviously you're not fresh out of college. You know, you're not 
first, you've, you've had some experience, but that now in those days gave you a 10-year exemption. So 91, um, you win the, the players there. A lot of people talk about the second shot into 18, you know, out of a divot and you just stepped up and hit it, whereas most people would be looking at the heavens and wondering what the hell happened to them. But tell us what, you know, what went through your mind when you did that or saw that lie and where were you situated? Yeah, I, that, re- referencing 1991, the Players' Championship was, hole was into the wind. It was like an eight iron on 17, which, you know, I hit an eight iron and didn't know if I had enough club because I was playing with Curtis Strange and he was the US Open champion and he hit a little cut six iron into 17. And mate, I don't know if they're playing. I know, I know there's a tee back there that where they have a grandstand now, but that was playing about 155 yards back then. I don't know. Now these guys, they played at like 110 or something. <laughs> but um, I found myself on 18, probably tied for the lead. Fuzzy and Zinger were back on 16. Phil Blackmar was in the, in the game. He hit it in the water at 17. But I drove it up 18 in the right side of the fairway. And I was just in a sandfield divot. Payne Stewart was the only guy that wasn't playing that week because he was injured and he was on the microphone. And I remember walking up there hearing Payne Stewart going, oh, look at all this beautiful turf around him. There's one divot and he's balls in this divot. And I sort of peeled off to the left because I didn't want to hear that. Walked over to the bulkhead because the guys were up there just on the green. And, you know, you're a really good long iron player and but you, you hit your long irons high. And I was always taught because I didn't have greens like you had in Melbourne, I, I always think that the easiest shot for a good player to hit is a low long iron. For me, it's not hard to hit a long iron low. So I just said to myself, you know, I used to practice this shot forever. Just on our 10th hole at Wagga was a 220-yard par three. Just put the ball on the ground, hit a low three iron, and almost hit the green every time because I'd landed about one nine and just run down there. And, mate, essentially that's what I did. I just played. You know, when you have it, when you're going for a long, low iron, you're going to have a fair amount of lean on the shaft, as you know. It wasn't that big a deal in in my mind to catch that ball first. Right. Yeah, and you'd be surprised that growing up in Melbourne, I actually did hit it low. For some reason, I started hitting it high again when I came over here. I think that I understand exactly what you're talking about. It's, and and even the conditions of playing country golf, you know, it's bare lies, and you. You sort of playing that shot a lot. You can't get it up in the air as well off a bare lie. No, we had you know our gear was good, good enough. Uh, fair amount of I had a fair amount of gooseneck in my long irons. The set that I had, I I couldn't hit them much. You know, playing with a small ball, you don't get them that high. And you win the players again in '97, and uh, that was I wouldn't say more special, but probably more. Um, fun for you because you led right throughout the tournament start to finish yeah. and that's something that doesn't happen very often in a in a pro event yeah that was probably you know my best ever hitting the ball performance because i i had every shot was on demand i mean i was hitting little draws and fades all the way through it you know and i was about four shots ahead going the last round it got a real real windy last day at Pontevedra and I finished up actually shooting a low round of the day with the lead in the last group. I think I shot 67 last day or 68. And normally there'd be someone out early shoot 66, but that, that tournament, I had the most control over everything. I, I mean, I could make the ball, you know, do whatever I wanted to. It was great. It was a great feeling. And the putting was there as well. So that was, 
that was a, that was the best performance as far as from T to Green. Would you call yourself a streaky putter? Like when you got hot, you got really hot or not? I was always good at super good at lagging lagging it. I was a great lag putter. I just never made that many twenty footers, but I was a good I was a good lag putter and I was a good short putter. Uh, when I won the Varden Trophy in 1995, the year there um, uh, that I won the PGA, I think I finished about 50th in putting, which, you know, considering I was way up there in greens and reg. Guys, in, I was listening to Colin Morikara recently, and he was saying that he was minus, I don't know, he was to the wrong side of putting four strokes, but he hit so many greens. He said, if I could just get into the top 50 in putting, I'll probably win every tournament. That's, you know, because he hit a lot of greens. So um, there's a little bit to learn there about that. Yeah, I agree with that too. You know, people used to say I was not a great putter, but I was like you. I was pretty good at short putts and I would rarely three putt. But because yeah, I hit so many greens, I was two putting a lot. I wasn't making all the, my stats would say 30, 31. And other yeah. guys are having 27. But I didn't think I was a bad putter. And that's exactly what I sort of knew you would say with Morikawa there. I had to work on my putting a fair bit. Um, I had aim issues when I, 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 when I looked at, you know, I went to Dave Pell's one time, who's a friend of mine here in Austin, and he put me in this little mouse hole and had a laser and it was getting me to aim at three feet, six feet, 10 feet, 20 feet. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't tell me the results until it was over. And after it was over, he said, well, you aim left at two feet, right at five feet, left and so on. I was all over the place. So we went and had lunch and I didn't know what to make of all this data at the time. And I said, I want to go back to that room and do it again. And he said, okay. So I walked up to this far from the little mouse hole. I said, put the laser on there. And he did. And he said, well, you, you aim it perfectly from three inches from the ball, <laughs> you know, three inches. So you know what I did? I took that piece of information and I took that and just aimed, I read my putt and then I found something on the green within one or two or three inches and that's the way I put it from then on I knew that I was good aimer from three inches so that's what I found on my break and that's how I became a much better putter right, and that's like the Nicholas you know pick something out in front and aim at the small target rather than being far away and I, I heard you use that to great effect when you won the PGA because the greens were not very good so you had a lot of little spike marks and things to aim at they had they resodded the greens and uh, they had all these spike marks we were we were wearing spikes back then and they were sticking up everywhere when it was freaking everybody out. And I remember Bob Rotella writing an article about me when I won it because, and, he, and the article was something like, well, Elkington was using those spike marks as targets. In other words, the, his system that he was using was working in his benefit because it was, they were everywhere and he could just pick the one he wanted to. And then I was just playing a game of trying to roll it up over the top of him. And he said, Elkington, beat them all before they started because I had this little little system in my head and it was interesting to take his perspective after you know after I read it later because that's exactly what I was doing all right and it helped because he weren't fear in the spike marks you were trying to hit him I was trying to hit him if you're serious about better golf check out my ebooks available at bradleyhughesgolf.com and bradleyhughesgolf-members.com my first book the great ball strikers was a hit and it catapulted Brandon Todd back into the spotlight of the game and winning back-to-back PGA Tour titles. The second book, The 430 Path to Great Golf, runs you through all the drills that I use with my players and in my instruction. 
you too can become your own best coach. Coming soon, Ben Hogan, The Secrets to His Success. This new book dives deep into the secrets that Ben Hogan used and explains them in great detail. It'll be a book not to be missed. It's coming soon. Find all my books at my website. Now back to the interview. So you were a pretty good repeater. I, if I check this correctly, you won the players twice, two a champion, or the not the two a champ, the tournament of champions twice, the roll twice, Buick challenge twice. So you're a, a good repeater. All those courses they, that you talked about were all narrow and pretty windy. And a couple of George Thomas courses there, the one in uh, down in Callaway Gardens, the TPC Sawgrass is narrow. Uh, Doral, very windy, like growing up in Australia. I was able to hit the fairways, keep the ball down, keep it in play. And over the course of a week, I was able to, you know, work my way up the board, you know. And um, I'm sure for you it was the same. There was courses on tour that you think you could do better than others. But where when it got windy for me, you know, I never I never really liked playing out West Coast because it was always spongy and wet. But when it, when it got dry and windy, like TPC like Doral, that's where it really suited my game. Yeah, a little, little fire, and you, you could do that. Whereas I remember playing the West Coast one year where we did have much firmer conditions. It was a little bit windier, and I played really well. I had a fifth, an eighth, a twelfth, and played you know, a million under par. And all the other players were complaining about how difficult it was. But I, again, I just said, well, I wish it was like this every tournament because that's what I know. Yeah, and, you know, Going back to what you said there about Riviera, Riviera was on Kaikuya grass, and that was the grass that was in Australia that we grew up on. Yeah. And a lot of people have a lot of trouble on Kaikuya because they hit down on the ball so much, and Kaikuya has a sponge to it, almost like a zoysia. Well, I was kind of a sweeper. So I, I could go at Wagga on a, on a Kaikuya. Mate, I could go all day and never, never take a divot back when I was a kid. So... It was my arc or, or my entry into the ball was shallow. And, uh, you know, playing at Riviera and the spongy, that was suited me fine. And, you know, you have to learn how to chip out of that stuff too, which is, you know, if you stab into it, mate, it, it could hit in front of you and come back to you. And even chip and run through that stuff. Exactly. So do you think the shallow path of your swing, you know, the, the small divot or the, the minimal divot is uh, – based on your roundness, you know, your grip being strong and your turn being, you know, more rounded. Like you said, you maybe got in trouble when you got too lateral, but when you got rounded, it just flattened the low point out. I think, I think you're right. And I think I would be a subject of my environment where I, you know, you can't dig into it when you play Kukuya, right? You've got to feel like you're going to sweep it. It's almost like you get on a lie out there today on a side hill lie in long grass, you can't go down after it because you'll, you'll hit, you'll miss the top of the club, right? right. You've got to learn, you've got to learn how to sort of sweep it. And then you become sort of a sweeper. It's actually interesting because Melbourne, where I grew up, obviously we think of all the great golf courses there, but I would, I did not grow up on one of the great courses, the sound belt just outside the area. And I actually grew up on Kaiku. So I know 100% what you're talking about. It was exactly right. You, you couldn't go down at that ball because you'd hit it so far up on the club that you'd sting your arms and the ball wouldn't go. Go nowhere. Yeah, go nowhere. Yeah. So um, what about, I want to bring this up. I don't know if anyone's ever asked you this, but you won the, well, I think it was the Southern Open at 
Callaway Gardens, 94. And there's another guy that came second. You remember who that was? I do. Yeah, he's an my Aussie mate, guy. Did, did you grow my, up my mate, my, One of my best mates from Mollymook, Steve Rintoul. Yeah, so you, yeah, you we, won another. Yeah, well, Rennie was on my junior team. We used to travel. Uh, I've known Rintoul since I was 12 years old. And he was from Mollymook and I was from Wagga. And we both made the junior schoolboy team. What together. does Mollymook mean in Aboriginal? Uh, Mollymook means, uh, I, think it, I think it actually means little village near the sea, Mollymook. <laughs> Anyway, that's what I'm going with today. <laughs> Have you been to Bollybrook? They had a country course and they had a city course right down on the beach. I've been through there, but not for golf, no. Actually, yeah, one of my friends, Anthony Painter, used to live there and he had like a hotel there. Yeah, I know Painter. Yeah. They had a great little course that was on a little headland right overhanging Mollymook Beach. You can see the surfers right there below you and it was just a, a little nine-hole course, beautiful little place, but... I saw Rintu, I sent him a text yesterday. He was the official that was officiating the Bryson uh, and Cantlay match yesterday on in the playoff. Okay. I thought I heard his voice, yeah. I texted him and said, hey, you're looking a bit chubby, a bit chubby. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have to tell you what he sent me back. <laughs> well, he is Australian, so I can only imagine. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I know you've talked about your best golf, you know, and let's go talk about how your swing or how your game was, you would think pretty ideal for a British Open Championship or the Open. And you nearly got it in 95. I know you classify that as one of your missed opportunities. And yeah. talk us through that. And then in 02, you almost got it again in the losing in a playoff. Yeah. I think that was probably the one you would win the most out of all of the majors or not if you had a, your game? Well, 95, as you said there, that was the Constantina Rocker daily playoff. And I was playing with uh, Corey Pavin on the Sunday. He had just won the U.S. Open. And I won I won the PGA a month later. But I was in the hunt on that back nine at St. Andrews. And I literally couldn't get the ball to the hole. And it was nerves. I just couldn't get myself to hit it. I was hitting the ball terrific. And I left that course on that night, uh, the Sunday after the British Open there, and I stayed in Scotland for like three weeks because I had a sinus infection. I, I couldn't fly. And I just, I just sat there and said, well, I'll probably never win a major because I just don't have the courage to do it. And I just was in all that pressure and I just didn't know what to do with it. Little did I know that the very next tournament I played was the PGA at Riviera. And there I was, I got off to a great shot, great start on Sunday, seven under through 12. And I was standing on the 13th tee thinking, well, I, I know one thing that's not going to happen. I'm not letting any pressure worry about this. I'm going to ride this horse all the way to the end. It's just to see what happens. I was just, and I just stepped out of the way in my thinking, my unconscious self said, just get out of the way. Let this other conscious self go for it. And, and I just, I've said this to a lot of people, but I just got out of the way and let the real guy want to go play. You think people can see that because it looked like you played, you know, to a lot of people, you looked like played really fast like that day. Cause everything was, you were, not overthinking and just had the freedom and just let it go. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because um, when I won the Players' Championship in 97, one of my friends, uh, Terry Okura, who you know, uh, went and taped every shot that I hit for the week and he timed it. And he found out that 98% of every shot where they hit from tee shot to green to putt took about 17 seconds for me to hit it. And if you go back and look at the PGA and he did it again, it's about 17 seconds. So I was in time for me. 
um, would be the answer to that question. And then your other reference was in Muirfield where I was in the playoff where we already talked already about hitting those long, low irons, low, low, long irons. Well, Muirfield was perfect that week because it was dry and running and didn't need a driver. And I was hitting these two irons just low off the tee. And I played another great round, 66 on Sunday. That was the, that was the tournament that Tiger shot an 80 on Saturday when the big wind came in and blew everyone off the board. I got lucky, made the cut near the nose, went out and shot a 68 on Saturday. And I just went to the top of the board when that weather came in and then, you know, finished up in a playoff. And the playoff, was that one? I think that was the first four-hole playoff. And they played you in as a group two of four, twos. and they played you in two twos. Yeah, that was just a, that was a decision they made on the tee. I was standing right there, and they said, what do you want to do? And someone said, let's play two twos. And they said, let's do it. So I was, I was off first with LeBay, and then Stuart Appleby and Ernie were behind me. I wanted to be in the group with Ernie because he was – when I finished at six or seven under, tied uh, Appleby in the clubhouse, Ernie was at like nine. Looked like he was going to win, and then he and he tripped up, made a couple of bogeys, and then all of a sudden we're all in the playoff. But Ernie was shot. He was shot when he got to the tee. Now, he recovered and won the event, but when he got to the tee, you know what this is like. If you cough up a three-shot lead coming down the stretch, you're pretty shot. And I wanted to be in that group because I was hitting it great. And, um, you know, nothing to take away from LeVay and Appleby, but I was red hot because I shot 66 on Sunday, and I was just playing great. Yeah, I, I've never heard. I don't know, still don't know the reason, but I guess you explained it there. It's just a flip of the coin rather than a, a true concept of why they did that. Well, they wrote they wrote to us later and said, or they wrote me and said they made a, an error. They should have played a foursome. And if they had an eightsome, make the play, they play an eightsome today. Like the uh, Olympics the other week. Exactly. So um, we saw the other week Phil, Harry Higgs, uh, Keith Mitchell and... And um, Damon, I think, played a, a betting match during practice round, which was probably, you know, in the past that was kind of frowned upon to admit that or know that it was going on. But I read somewhere once, or I might have heard you say that, you know, you were part of some betting matches on Tuesday. Everyone liked to do that. And I heard that you got a check from Tom Watson once for winning a, a match, and he, like, wrote it off as something else. Well, we used to play matches all the time, and I think – I had a check from Tom Watson on the memo. It had McGregor, set of McGregor Woods on the memo. Like he sold them to me. And I wish I still had that check because that would be unreal. It wasn't that much money, but I wish I had that check. But <laughs> it was another story. We played with Tom Watson. Zinger would I and Greg Norman would play, you know, Tom Watson and Ray Floyd in matches. And we would play these uh, you know, pretty high stakes game, but there was one one at Muirfield in a practice round. The wind was blowing 30, 40 mile an hour. And we were playing this all kinds of bets, but there was one overriding bet was called ten thousand dollar no bogey. If you could go around the course without making a bogey, you get ten thousand from everyone. Well, the first hole at Muirfield is like a five hundred yard par four, dead into the wind with three foot high rough on both sides, and we were all out after one hole except Tom Watson, and that he. We didn't, then we forgot about him. And then by the time we got around to about the 15th, he still hadn't made a bogey. So we're all sweating him coming down the stretch. And he gets to the 18th tee without making a bogey. And now he's going to catch 18 downwind right to left. And he drove it in the, in the, in the bunker. But he took like a five iron out of this bunker, which I wouldn't have been able to get out with a nine, and, and knocked it on the front fringe. Finished up three putting not to win 30,000, which back then was probably about fifth place in the tournament. <laughs> 
<laughs> Couldn't and believe you let us off the hook like that. So, you know, uh, you've been with Secret Golf for a number of years. It's your big baby now that we're trying to get content out and everyone knows my involvement at all. So you're very heavily involved in the swing. Like You like to give out thoughts and ideas. What about of today's players? Who's, whose action do you like and who, who do you think lacks something that you could... You know, as, as good as they are, who, who could improve and who, you know, is technically very sound for you? Well, when I look at, you know, I, you know, I know how you coach and, you you know, you're a, you like to primarily, well, I'm not going to tell you what you do. I'll, 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 I look at what the club base is doing, what the plane is doing and what the body's doing. And, and when it becomes real pretty and, and, you know, looks real efficient, all three, you know, match up really well, you know. The body looks like it supports the plane. The plane supports the club face. And, you know, you look at Shoffley's got a great action. You look at Morikawa's got a great action. Um, there's a there's a ton of guys that have got a great action out there. Some of your players, they don't necessarily, you know, I used to think of like Paul Azinger had a great swing. I used to think of Tom Watson, Payne Stewart, and Greg Norman, all these different players that, were real repeatable, did the same exact thing they did each time. You know, I don't really have this crazy eye for a certain plane angle. I mean, it's, it's been really interesting for me, and, and I've liked the idea that Justin Thomas is way more upright for a small guy. I've enjoyed watching his swing. You know, in our day, we might have tried to fight that plane down onto the shoulder plane because we might have been copying someone else. But what do you think of the upper plane now, like Justin Thomas and so on. That That is a more upright action for his size. Correct. And and I think he still does bring it down a little bit, you know, into a, what I call the 430. He slots it pretty good. But I think he just looks very high at the top. So his swing is more upright looking than a lot of people. But I think that big right knee kick and lift, I think that helps him get that slot down that, you know, he jumps high off that right foot. A lot of people could probably not do that, not strong enough or wouldn't have anywhere to go with that. So he's obviously found the technique that works for him. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can play golf. And I think he's sort of mastered that one. And not too dissimilar to Nicholas. He had a pretty high backswing, vertical more, and had some terrific leg drive as well. So I think even though they look slightly different, they're pretty similar in ideas. Yeah, and you, you know, I, I think you you're a sort of a downswing orientated looker, right? You like to see where that club's coming on the downswing, right? To a degree. Yeah. Mostly. And, you know, I've been, I've been through years of my career where I thought that if I could make this backswing, that would take care of the downswing. Then I've had other times in my career where I could make any backswing if I knew where this downswing was and so on. So do you agree with that? That's my deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Currently, for me, I'm always trying not to have too much lateral, so I have a, a number of ways to do it. But I, I basically, for me, I try to keep my arms from flying out away from me, so keep them back, which works into what you do and and um, or think about. You know, I I do think that rhythm and tempo of the swing is not sort of uh, as important. I do like Morikawa's; he has that going for him and I think he uses that real well this year at the Open Championship it was interesting to me to see a guy win the Open like Morikawa one of the shortest hitters 
on our tour, actually even playing a three wood most of the back nine that day and being able to, you know, win the event because we were finally on a course where you weren't rewarded for smashing it over the bunkers, you know. So, right. and what can we do about that? You know, there's a bit of talk this week about how everyone tore this course up in the BMW, the second playoff event. But, you know, the, sometimes the courses are just at the mercy, aren't they? They can't really do anything. They, softer and no wind and lift clean in place you really just it's just on display then yeah and and there was a contrast to some degree yesterday in the playoff you had one guy who hits it a mile bryson but you know he's definitely afraid to miss a green right now because he can't chip and is the reason he can't chip is because his sand wedge is a six iron length with a 60 degrees on a six i went and got my six iron went outside and tried to chip one across the yard was not that easy to do with a six iron length with a, a soft sand iron swing. But, um, and then you got Cantlay, who, there would be an argument to be made that Bryson actually didn't outplay him because he's still hitting at 300 and he's playing into the greens with three clubs more and he's still beating. So, but of course we saw Cantlay, you know, the equalizer there was a great putting. Uh, Bryson of course had tons of chances, but you know, there's, I would have said to you that Ram you know, Ram kind of, in my mind, sort of plays back with golf. He plays with his bows back, it just and opens up and almost hits it like a backhander. And I thought Ram would would be in the scene a little bit more, and he may be uh, starting this week in Atlanta. But this Dustin Johnson, same way, kind of plays a backhand way. Kepka, the same way. Then you'll have other guys that are more right-handed, like Cantlay, uh, right-handed, sort of orientated through the ball, through through yeah. the hitting action. Others are draggers, others are hitters, you know, or swingers. So, um, you know, I've enjoyed seeing a lot of that this year. Yeah, it's well, it's it's fascinating because a lot of people, you know, Nicholas uh, grew up playing great. Greg Norman copied Jack Nicholas. I'm sure you copy, I'd say, Bruce Devlin. Now, there's a lot of people that copycat different people. Not many tried to copy Trevino, I don't think, although he's probably a good case study to do it. But, you know, the, there is a flavour of the day. And I, I know you mentioned there's a lot of instruction out talking about bowing the wrist and holding on and things like that. What do you think of that? Because that's definitely not your deal. It's not uh, my deal either. I'm the other way. That's right. You know, I'm the other way. And, you know, I tell people if I took my hand like that straight up and down and make a fist you know, that's 20 degrees or 30 degrees right there. And if you ask Jack Nicholas to do that, which I've asked him to do that, just make a fist, he makes a fist that almost goes reverse this way. So I think, I, I don't know if I've talked to you about this, but I think that's my neutral position at the top. All right, so you're not fighting it? Not fighting it at all. I've tried to do that. Don't know where the club face is. Now, right. Hogan went the same way he went this way and then he was able to he had that room to turn into it what he did so i've always i've always been here at the top which is kind of i don't even think about it i mean that's where i am at address i kind of keep it there all the way then i can flatten it as i want to come in isn't that so what not, they say do it naturally yeah yeah and why fight physics or I'm sure you get a lot of requests from tour players that want to want to uh, ask you questions about the position of the left wrist at the top is that true yeah, and, and a lot of questions about different things like should I let my head release or should I my right foot look like this? Or, but you're right, it, it, a lot of 
and I think I've had a good understanding of this because, you know, as a golfer, you try a million different things. So I've seen what works and what doesn't work for me. And then I, I think I'm a good observer at matching it to the person, you know, their body makeup and their action that you don't want to try and fight to do something. You want to basically be as natural as you can and let things just fall into place how they should. Yeah, I always, whenever I'm working on my action, I always say to myself, when I hit one, good, well, can I do that again? You know, can I do it? Can I repeat that? And if you can't repeat it, like if there's too many moves to repeat it, then it's not going to work. That's right. It's got to be pretty simple, yeah. And uh, so let's get back into the golf just for a little bit. What's your, what's your most prized uh, victory on tour, golf-wise, obviously? And... It doesn't have to be a tournament. I know there's something else you're probably pretty proud of that you'll mention, but tournament and obviously we'll talk about the Varden because that's a big deal. Yeah, 92 US, uh, 92 Australian Open that you mentioned, uh, you were the 83 Masters, uh, 93 Masters champion, Australian Masters. Um, 92 Australian Open at the Lakes in Sydney was great for probably my you know, my favorite win because my mum and dad were there, my Alex Mercer and his wife, they're members of the Lakes Club. My brother was there, but my grandmother was there and she'd never seen me play before. So that was all, that everything all came into one for me on that one. And they were all there and we had a great, you know, the whole, the whole family was there. And, um, you know, that was, and a friend was caddying for me from America. It was great. And Varden Trophy, you mentioned, lowest scoring average for the season. That's big. Had went went right down to the last event at uh, the Tour Championship. I had to beat Nick Price by I think I had to beat Nick Price by three or four strokes in that tournament to get the Varden Trophy. That's the low stroke average uh, for the season. That's good. You know, that's that was the year where I said there I won the Varden Trophy, the low scoring average, and finished about seventieth in putting. So I kind of maxed out. <laughs> so I was hitting tons of greens. You know what I mean? That's right. Greens in reg always wins. I, you know, I think you can out putt them a little bit now and then, but if you don't have to putt great and you're always in play, it's a great uh, recipe to have. Ram seems to putt like I did, and I don't. I'm not comparing myself to Ram because he's great, but when he putts, he seems to putt pretty average on occasion, and he's still right there a lot. And then when he knocks them all in, he, he kills them. All right. Yeah. What about your fancy dress sense, Al? You know, you had the alligator boots and the shiny belts and stuff like that. He stood out a little bit. Where'd that come from? Probably not that from, came from Jackie. That came from Jackie Burke here and, and Jimmy Demerit. And uh, when I first got to Champions Club in 82, there was Jackie Burke, Jimmy Demerit, J.A. Bear, Dave Marr were all around the club at the time. Demerit died in 83. But they, they all said, look, if you're going to play the tour, you've got to be dressed properly because they, people are going to be looking at your swing. So they better they better look at you and go, wow, wow, what's that? <laughs> so they said, we're going to this tailor. They said, let's get our pants made. Let's get our shirts made. Let's get our belts made. Let's get everything made. That was Demerit. That was Burke. That was J.A. They all wanted to look a certain way. And uh, of course you were referencing shoes. You know, I love, uh, I, I love shoes anyway. I got more shoes than any woman that you and I know, but um, Titleist used to, uh, Footjoy used to give us uh, alligator shoes when you won a tournament. So every time I'd win a tournament, I'd order another pair, just extra. So, <laughs> uh, you know, they were great. 
That is fancy stuff. I mean, obviously, Demerit was pretty awesome. I never got to see him, obviously, but I've got his books and all the colourful stuff that he used to do. And and did they actually, they had a tailor? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, so so did Ray Floyd, Cal Pete, Raymond Floyd, all these guys, Hal Sutton. You know, they all, when we got to LA, we'd all go to this one tailor out there and they, you know, Hal Sutton took me down there one time with Ray Floyd. Those guys would get 500 pair of pants made. They delivered it three different times during the year, you know, 50 pair here, 50 pair and all, you know, I mean, unreal. Those guys were, it was, it was great, great era. And, and fashion now has changed and it's different. And I hope it gets a little bit wilder than what it is right now. Cause it's pretty, pretty vanilla at the moment. Yeah. The khaki and white and very basic Blue, stuff. Gray, that's it. All right, so you're 58 now. Alki you didn't play much on the Champions Tour, but probably got your reasons for that. Like you said, you did enough in your career. What's what's next? What do you see? Or would you have done anything different? Put it that way. I don't think I would have done anything different. I was out there for a long time, mate. Um, got to meet a lot of great guys like you and a ton of people. You know, you and I crossed paths in the President's Cup, and now we reconnected through coaching and secret golf and what you're working on. And, uh you know, your life, you know, your life changes. You know, when you first get on tour, you can't wait to get there. And then at the end of your career or, or towards the end, you can't wait to get off. Or at least I couldn't because I'd been out there a long time. I did two years, as you said, on Champions Tour. Love the Champions Tour. Just uh, I just don't want to do it. I, I got two kids and, and I, I want to be here. I spent my whole life away from my other family in Australia. So I got plenty of work I made. I got plenty of 33 tour players that are affiliated with Secret Golf and I got to be a psychologist to them, mate, including a couple of coaches like you. So I got plenty to do. All right. And we'll finish up just a real couple of basic questions. What's your favorite course? Let's start with Australia. Australia, my favorite course by far is New South Wales Golf Club, La Perouse, yeah. Alistair McKenzie. Yeah. Good history there, too. I, I like that course, too. People that have never played it, they need to. I mean, the first time you walk over that hill on the fifth fairway, it's just obscene what the view looks like. Yeah, it's not only the view over the hill, it's that Captain Cook discovered Australia there in 1718. And it's just like, you're, you're like on the greatest course in the world where a guy uh, discovered the country. What about favourite track in, favourite course in America? In America, uh, National Golf Links up in Long Island was by McDonald, which is, has every architectural feature in the book. It's got sunken greens. It's got upside-down bunkers, Redan, Baritz. It's got all the tricks of every architectural feature. Ring and the a windmill. bell. Windmill. <laughs> That's a windmill. The logo is a windmill. But a tour course, uh, tour course, I would probably say Pebble Beach. I love to go out to Pebble Beach. And what about uh, somewhere else in the world? You can claim it anywhere, but probably probably Europe. St. Andrews. Yeah. Uh, St. Andrews is, is like um, National Golf Links. It's so quirky. Um, you know, two holes wide, out and in. You've got to play away from the target to get to the target. All this quirkiness. Some people may say it's traditional. But I love quirky courses. I, I, I'm really attracted, my eye, to hitting shots where you got to hit away from the flag. It'll bounce it back. And I just, I just love it. Yeah, and ask you some questions. All right, what about your favourite or your best shot you've ever hit, whether at a certain time or just no one ever saw or anything like that? Well, 
best shot under pressure was that three iron we talked about earlier, probably at the 91 Players Championship to, to actually win the, you know, birdie the hole and win the tournament. That was a pretty good shot. Um, Mate, I did. I did make a hole in one the other day at Ben Hogan Hall at, at Champions uh, Number Four. Uh-huh. Had a that was pretty good for me. Uh, but no, I, that's I, the I one think, he famously uh, played his last tournament and walked off from, isn't it? Yeah, played his last hole, Hogan's Hole. So the fourth at Champions, Cypress Creek. It was a good shot. But uh, you know, playing golf with Sam. I don't know if that's a question, but watching your kids play golf is pretty super to me. He has some great shots and. Um, all shots, mate. I mean, there's so many shots, but President's Cup in Melbourne when we were there was some good shots playing with the Shark there when we played that match with Freddie Couples and Davis Love when they were the World Cup uh, champions, I think, for three years in a row. We were able to beat them in that four-ball match on a Saturday afternoon with about 50,000 Australians down there. It was I remember that match. Uh, it, was, it was incredible down there. What about the favourite club you've ever had? You know, everyone has a favourite. Some you can't use forever, but Mate, the, the Bruce Devlin, the Red Devil, the set of Red Devils, uh, which I had them now. Bruce Devlin used to have a, a little logo of a little devil with a red golf club holding it with a fork, pitchfork. <laughs> and uh, they were called, they were made by Slazinger, the Red Devils. They were my think, favorite set. I think my first set, you'll probably remember these, was a PGA f- status, Mark Five. Oh, yeah. They were blank in the back. They, they, were, had, a, they, they were, had a disc on the back with a kangaroo on Oh, yeah, the disc. Yeah, the disc, the yeah. green disc. Little That's green it. disc. That's it. They were big. They were they were tall. Yeah, they were they worked good on the Kaiku when I was younger. Yeah, you got to sweep it, mate. <laughs> All right. Well, I love talking to you, Al. You got some great insight. Um, appreciate everything that you've done for me and the way we keep keeping in touch. It's pretty awesome. You bet, mate. And uh, I look forward to doing some more work with you soon. We've got a few projects. We weren't going to tell them about right now, but we got a really interesting project that we're working on coming up. We'll come back to that another time. That's right. All right, mate. Good luck there in Houston, Alex. Say hi to Lisa and the kids, and I'll speak to you later, See you soon, mate. Thanks, buddy. All right, mate. Well, that's it for another episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. For more information about my golf instruction, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. If you like to watch golf videos to make you a better player, sign up for my members only site Bradley Hughes Golf hyphen members.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.